0: Well, excellent singing with you this morning. That last song, it ended like some of my sermons. Just boom. (laughs) Done. It is great to sing with you this morning. We, uh, my wife and I, we sing in our home. We sing to recorded music. I was uh, reminded this past week that uh, the bulletin that we send out every Saturday actually comes with a playlist for our Sunday morning worship, and I'd kind of forgotten that, and Lynn reminded me, and so this morning we were able to get up and play the playlist, and so we, we heard the songs before we arrived, which uh, benefits our singing with you. Uh, we're not professional singers for sure, so we can sing at home just belting it out, and, uh, but we can come in here and sing congregationally with you, which is, uh, which is great. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Pastor Mark. I'm glad to be with you this morning and glad to be leading you in the Word of God. Pastor Jonathan read for us earlier in the service 2 Corinthians chapter 3, so if you have your Bibles, you can return there. I'm tempted to reread the entire chapter because it feels like it was several minutes ago that we read this, but I'll let his uh, reading stand. Just know that our message this morning is coming from this passage, and uh, we'll refer to it as we make our way through this, uh, this message this morning. Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. And then uh, we'll press into our message for uh, this morning. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come and we have sung of your glory, a glory that surpasses all other glory. And you have revealed to us your glory in the person and in the face of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, we stand in awe of him. We pray that as we uh, work our way through this passage, that uh, you would teach us that we would be encouraged, that we would be filled with hope, and uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. Again, I'd kind of like to reread the passage. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, Twelve times from verse 7 to verse 18, it mentions the word glory, and it's referring to the glory of Moses and then the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. And uh, then also in this passage, you have the Apostle Paul who's writing this, and in the, in the presence of all this glory, particularly the surpassing glory of Jesus, uh, he doesn't have fear or trepidation. No, he has confidence and courage and boldness and hope. And I pray that that will fall on us as we, uh, as we consider this this morning. But uh, we, we live, as I begin this morning, I want to just remind us, it uh, doesn't, to, to doesn't need to be spoken, it doesn't need to be said again, but we live in a badly, badly broken world. We live in a badly broken world. How many of you would have received emails from me this week, supposed emails from me this week, asking for a favor, asking for money, asking for gift cards? Well, some, several people have uh, received bogus emails this week. Uh, it's not from my, they didn't hack my email account, they just hacked my name and hacked my address list and, uh, and sent out numerous emails to our missionaries, to our membership, to past members, asking for money, asking for gift cards. Some of you have been recipients of that bogus email. It's not my email, it's not me. Someone is using my name to do evil. They're looking to profit from people who aren't paying attention and see my name in an email head and who will send a gift card (laughs) to them. It's evil, right? Bugger hackers, nefarious creatures, they ought to be punished to the full extent of the law using my name for their own good and to take from you. Well, on a deeper level, uh, this uh, past week, myself and my siblings and our spouses, uh, we uh, buried my father. His burial was on Tuesday. This coming Saturday at his church down in Fenton, we'll have his memorial service. And uh, going through that, it was just a reminder that death is a terrible, dreadful reminder that the world in which we live is not a friendly place. We don't want things to go on the way they are like this forever. That would be disastrous. Disastrous. Uh, We would be in despair. In our world today, this broken world in which we live, if there is a shooting in Chicago, or a riot in New York, or protest in Seattle, or a busload of sex slaves rescued at the border, or a bombing in Tel Aviv, or a suicide bomber anywhere, somewhere, we hear about it within moments of it happening. Instantly, we know about it. It's like we can't get away from the bad news. And we live in such a time and such a day where humanity's inhumanity is constantly paraded before us in the social media and in the network news. Uh, People today are literally discipling one another in hatred, and they have to do that. And so they have a people group that they can exercise their angst against. And so people are discipling one another in hatred, and we are constantly hearing expressions of violence and oppression and injustice and murder and war War on nearly every continent. All of this is no longer newsworthy, but it's the news that we repeatedly hear, and it becomes a bit overwhelming at times. Uh, You don't need to be a Christian. You don't have to have a biblical worldview to know that something is terribly wrong. We live in a very badly broken planet, and there is evil in the world. You don't have to have a biblical worldview to recognize that there is evil in the world. I find it fascinating that uh, there's a group of people today who are intent on space exploration and that space exploration exploration is driven along by the desire we need to find another habitable planet. We need to get somewhere, we need to get off this planet because we are going to destroy ourselves and we're destroying this world so we need to find another habitable planet where humanity can go. And if these modern space explorers ever found a habitable hab- uh, habitat for humanity to go, I wonder how they would decide who gets to go. Who gets to go? People from every tribe, nation, language, people group? Rich and poor? Or just their buddies who have the money to get there? How would they decide? And then what makes them think or even believe that if they found a habitable planet and they could get humanity there, that it wouldn't happen all over again? Is that what we need? We just need a new environment. Well, this brokenness that we are aware of, that we live in, all of this evil brokenness has a traceable origin. How far back do you have to go? How far back in human history do you have to go? Hundred years, 1500 years? Where, where did humanity go sideways? When did all this evil come into our existence? This evil brokenness can be traced back to the garden of humanity where mankind was brought into existence by the breath and the handiwork of God. God created mankind in his image. He made them male and female. He made them good. And we see reflections of that goodness every day too. God made man in his image. He made them good. He gave them the privilege and the responsibility of ruling the world. And he gave them the pleasure of procreating and filling the planet with offspring. All of this unmerited dominion of this planet, which God gave them, would be under God's authority because God gave humanity one rule to obey. Obey. God said to the man and the woman, run the place. Do as you please. Just don't eat this one tree. Leave this one tree alone. Don't eat its fruit. Through keeping that one rule, They would demonstrate their faith in God's Word and their confidence in God's good and gracious nature and character, and they would experience God's goodness and graciousness in perpetuity. Were they obedient? Did they succeed? When evil raised its ugly head, did they defeat it? When temptation came, did they hold to God's Word? Did they pass the test? No. Would you and I have done any differently? (laughs) Not with my record and not with yours. The founding parents were deceived by the evil one, a prideful, fallen, created angel who rebelled against God before they did. That means evil was here before man was here, evil existed before man existed, evil has an origin and it's real, and it's cosmic. The man and the woman, they believed this evil one who came and deceived them, and they disobeyed God, and evil fell upon this world. Mankind exalted himself, and they disobeyed God, and their hearts turned inward in selfishness and pride, and The human race was taken captive by disobedience, and sin and evil and death became the order of the day from that day forward. It's fascinating that you read human history, the first account post the Garden of Eden is murder. Adam and Eve have children, and Cain murders his brother. What a statement on the pervasiveness of evil. It's here. Evil hearts were passed down from generation to generation and death was passed down from generation to generation. That is a real bummer. Merry Christmas to you all. (laughs) Is there any hope? Is there any hope? When evil came in, God graciously made a promise. A promise that he would fix the brokenness and he would fix the brokenness Through a man, a man who would be born, a new man, a man who would be born from a woman. He would come and he would crush Satan and he would defeat sin and he would end death. This man would succeed where our founding parents failed. He would roll back evil. He would be the head of a whole new creation of humans who would gladly come under his authority, having been transformed from the inside out through the power of the message of his success and victory. Evil broke in on the world through one man's disobedience. Salvation would come into the world through one man's obedience, a new Adam. And when evil broke out onto this planet, God promised a remedy. He promised a man. He promised a rescuer, and God gave humanity hope. Now track with me through a little bit of history. We need to think this through. God made that promise to Adam and Eve. Well, how many generations later does God destroy the world with a flood? <laughs> because the thoughts of mankind's heart was only evil continually. So God made the promise to Adam and Eve, and then you have all these generations, and then you have the flood, and then you have the Tower of Babel, and then you find this promise being repeated. And the promise is being repeated to who? Abraham. It is through Abraham's family that this blessed promised rescuer would come into the world for all the world, not just for Abraham's descendants, but for everyone. And then that promise was passed down to Isaac, And then Jacob, who was renamed Israel, and Israel had 12 sons, they were the 12 tribes of Israel, and that promise was passed from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah, the tribe of Judah. During Judah's lifetime, Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, were taken as uh, captives or slaves, if you will, down to Egypt by a famine, and God grew them as a people for 400 years. And then in the biblical record, we run into this man that we read about in today's chapter, this man named Moses. He's not from the tribe of Judah. He's not in the line of the rescuer. Why would the scripture give any focus to this man named Moses? He's from the tribe of Levi. We're tracking this promise. Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Moses is a Levite. What's so big about this guy? Well, Moses is a mighty prophet. Through Moses, God brings the children of Abraham, the Israelites, out of Egypt and on to the promised land. We're familiar with this history. They make movies about this history. So we're familiar with Moses and the Exodus. Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, heading toward the promised land, the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And en route to that land, God descended on Mount Sinai like a fire. And Moses, this mighty prophet, is called to come up on the mountain and meet with God. And God meets with him like face to face. And God cuts a new covenant with Israel. And Moses is the mediator of that new covenant. And he stands between the people and God and he comes down the mountain with stones where God has carved the new covenant. And his glory shines on his face. And the people recognize the glory of Moses so much so that he has to veil his face as he mediates this new covenant. That covenant that God cuts with the children of Israel includes the law, the Ten Commandments. You all know the Ten Commandments. The thou shalt and thou shalt not. The Old Covenant comes with the law, the Ten Commandments, and the unique constitution for the nation of Israel as they wait for the Messiah to come. The covenant includes the law with all of its punishments and all of its blessings. It comes with a sacrificial system so that the lawbreakers can actually be atoned for and worship God. The old covenant comes with a tabernacle and sacrifices and offerings and a priesthood and national holidays. Moses, a mighty prophet, met with God, and he's the mediator of that covenant which marked off Israel as a peculiar people, as a chosen nation among the nations. The law, as we read in this chapter here, chapter 3, the law was glorious and good, revealing God's moral nature to his people and expressing the good laws that they were to live by. The law, the delivery of the law was glorious. I mean, literally, God descends on the mountain as a fire, and Moses' face is radiant and he would veil his face before the people. Moses is a venerated prophet, the mediator of the Old Covenant between God and Israel. In all their history, you read through all of Old Testament history, who stands out like Moses? This is a phenomenal mediator of the Old Covenant. But with all that in mind, let me ask you, did that Old Covenant, with all of its glory and all of its goodness, did that Old Covenant crush Satan? Did the old covenant crush Satan? Did the old covenant bring an end to sin? Did all the rules and regulations guide people into perpetual righteousness? Did the sacrifices that they made continually on the altar, did it cleanse the people's consciousness and make them new in their hearts? Did the old covenant defeat death? Did Moses and the old covenant usher in the fulfillment of God's promises of a rescue from evil? No, no. The law is not a washcloth that washes away our sin. The law is a mirror to reveal to us how sinful we are. The past two weeks, I've read through the Old Covenant, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. A fascinating read. You read through the law, and and there are sins there. There There are things that are written there like, I would have never thought of that. That is absolutely horrible. I would never do that. And then there's other parts of the law that you read through and you're like, oh boy, that, that reflects what I used to be like. That, that's there in my heart. The law is not a washcloth to wash away our sin. It's a mirror to reveal to us how sinful we are. The law wasn't given to rescue anyone. It's not what its purpose was. It was given so that it might remind people of the rescue that is needed and the savior that is so desperately needed. Reading through the Old Covenant... And reading through the Old Testament after Moses and the giving of the Old Covenant, it gives clear evidence that mankind is not going to rectify his relationship with God and end evil through personal moral development or improvement. The world won't be fixed through self-effort. God gave to Israel a good and glorious and moral law. With promises of reward, great reward, and threats of terrible punishment, he gave the law with its system of sacrifices and offerings and a priesthood and a temple and a place to worship God. God makes a covenant with Israel through Moses and the people don't keep the covenant. And we have a millennium of history written down that reveals that to us. The old covenant will not be kept with by broken people with sinful hearts. Do you want to go back? Depend on Moses. You want to gather on Sunday morning and have me point you back to the glory of Moses and the giving of the law? Do you want to live by a list of rules and principles? Some people do. Now just give me the list. Give me the rules. Give me the principles. I'll do it. People whose hearts are still ruled by pride. You want to live by Do You want to live by rules? The Israelites received a moral code from God, a covenant, and they didn't keep it. You want to give it a try? You want to live under that? The people who Paul is writing to, they would be very familiar with that. It's it's a little more distant to us. So I'm I'm trying to bring you into this. Moses is glorious greatest of the Old Testament prophets. He, 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 he gave them God's word. It was, a, it was a law, and it was a moral law, and it revealed God's moral character. It's great and glorious. Do you, you want to go back there? The old covenant won't be kept by broken people with sinful hearts. Evil won't be stopped by new laws. You have some hope that in our country, they're going to rewrite the law book, and somehow we're going to be improved, and we're going to Therefore, after Moses and the giving of the law, the prophets of God, if you continue thinking through your Old Testament history, after Moses and the giving of the law and the continual breaking of the law, the prophets of God, namely Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they begin speaking about and writing about a new covenant. A new covenant that will overshadow the old one. A new covenant that will be superior. A new covenant that won't be broken That will be kept and fulfilled and satisfied. A new covenant that won't be written on stone, but it'll be written on the tablets of human hearts. No longer an external rule which condemns us and kills us, but now an internal transformation that changes us from the inside out. The new covenant will be powerful like raising people from the dead. It won't be a ministry of condemnation. It won't be a ministry of death that Paul is writing about. No, it will be a ministry of the Holy Spirit where God's law will be written on the hearts of man, giving them new hearts and new desires. That sounds glorious. That sounds more glorious. Jumping over the Christmas story where Jesus came and fulfilled all the promises. The night Jesus was crucified, he took the cup and he said, He said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The disciples would have known what he was saying. And it's an audacious claim. They'd have been very familiar with the old covenant, very familiar with Moses, very familiar with the law, very familiar with the sacrificial system, the priesthood. And now there's been this new covenant promise. It's going to be superior, a better one. And Jesus, standing before them around the table, says, this is the blood of the new covenant. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, I realize this is a lot of history, there's a lot going on here, but we're reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And in this chapter, Paul reminds the Corinthians that Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, and he would veil his face before the people for a glory that wouldn't last. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He actually is the unveiled glory of God. We're talking something very different here. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He doesn't conceal God's glory. No, he gives it and he reveals it because he is that promised man. He's the promised rescuer made way back in the Garden of Eden and then re-promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and all the way through. Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, Jesus, the mediator of the New Covenant, he is the unveiled glory of God. And as it relates to the New Covenant, Jesus is more than just the mediator. He's more than Moses. Moses simply stood between the people and God. Jesus is God. He is the final sacrifice. No more sacrifice needs to be made. He is a permanent priest. Through him, we draw near to God and we find full acceptance He is the place that we meet with God. He replaces the temple. He is the acceptable offering. He's the promised Savior. His glory is incomparable. And so, when you're reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and you're talking about the glory of Moses and the glory of the Old Covenant, which, quite frankly, is glorious, it's not like that's all bad and we've got something good. No, that was good and glorious. But now there is a superior glory. It's like a strike of a match compared to the glory of the sun. We're talking something radically different here, radically better. Yes. Moses and the old covenant, they didn't crush Satan. It didn't end sin. It didn't usher in righteousness. It didn't cleanse people's consciences. It didn't create new hearts and renewed desires. The old covenant didn't come with the promise of eternal life. It didn't do it. The old covenant revealed sin. It increased the knowledge of sin. And it points us toward the need of a savior, the rescuer that was promised. A rescuer who would be born of a woman, descended from Abraham, from the tribe of Judah, born from King David's family, a rescuer who would be born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt, identified as a Nazarene, preceded by a prophet who would fulfill all of God's promises. You know, it's fascinating when you read through the Bible and you read through Moses' ministry, and it's just epic, huge, colossal, massive, glorious, When Jesus comes along and he has a prophet that precedes him, the prophet that precedes him is who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist doesn't seem to do anything like Moses did. But Jesus says of John the Baptist, he's the greatest of the prophets. How is John the Baptist greater than Moses, greater than all the prophets? John the Baptist have the privilege of saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one that everyone's been writing about. He's the fulfillment of the promises. That's what makes John the Baptist greater. His ministry is more significant. He literally gets to point people to Jesus. Remarkable. So Jesus is the hope for people who are living in a badly broken world. Jesus is the hope for people who have been broken off from God because of their own sin. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he reminded them that he came to them with the message of Jesus Christ. They heard the message, they believed the message, and they placed their faith in Jesus. Paul came to the Corinthians with the gospel, the good news, which is powerful, the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The Corinthians hear the message, they receive the message, they place their faith in Jesus, and God writes them into his story. That's epic. Massive change of heart. Very powerful message. And now having heard the message and having believed God's story, they they now are a letter from God not written with ink and pen and not carved on stone with a chisel, but they are a letter written by the Spirit of God on the tablets of human hearts. This is absolutely epic. They are beneficiaries of the ministry of the new covenant. Paul could say, (laughs) this is fascinating, Paul could say, my ministry is greater than the ministry of Moses's." And the superiority of his ministry isn't on his own superiority, but the fact that he's the minister of a superior covenant, the new covenant. Because of God, because of what God has done for the world through Jesus Christ, Paul has confidence and courage and boldness. He has hope. His sufficiency doesn't come from himself, but it comes from God and he defends the superiority of his ministry. That's what he's doing here in this part of the letter. He defends the superiority of his ministry based on the fact that he has been called by God's grace to be a minister of the new covenant, which comes with a far greater glory. You know, if you, if you think this through, if we were living in a time when Christ had not come, we would still be accountable to the old covenant we would still be under the law. And you'd gather together and we'd say, bring an offering, bring a sacrifice. There'll be a priest who will mediate on your behalf and through that priest you can draw near to God and worship. But next week when you come, bring an offering, bring a sacrifice endlessly. Jesus has come. He's the mediator of a new and better covenant. And we are glad to not be under the condemnation Of the law, but we're now glad to be in Jesus Christ. Because through faith in Jesus Christ, God does a mighty miracle. He joins people to Jesus in a vital union, forgives them of their sins, cleanses their conscience, and they can draw near to God with boldness and courage, knowing that they've been fully accepted, not on the basis of their merits but in the merits of Jesus Christ. We live in a badly broken world. Brokenness is all around us every day. Everything from unresolved personal conflicts to full-scale war on nearly every continent. We live in a badly broken world, but as followers of Jesus Christ, followers of the resurrected Lord, we have hope. We have an eternal hope. We have living hope. We have a hope that will not disappoint us. We will not be ashamed or embarrassed or put out. We have confidence and boldness. We have hope because we have a living Savior who has taken on Satan, sin, and death, and he has been victorious. What the old covenant could not do, Jesus has done. He holds the keys. He has the authority. He's the new Adam. He's the rightful king. He's from the tribe of Judah, and the scepter will never depart from the tribe of Judah. Jesus is our eternal Savior. He's the mediator of a more glorious covenant, a covenant that is completed. That means there's no more work for you and I to do to find our acceptance before God. That's huge. Jesus kept the old covenant, he was born a man, he was born under law, but he kept the covenant completely. Are you happy with his obedience? You sure ought to be because that's what's been credited to you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that's the great exchange. Your sin was placed on Christ. Christ took the punishment you deserved in his own body on the cross. And his righteousness, what righteousness? Just the pure moral essence that he's God? No, as a man, he kept the law. <laughs> Every part of it. Never broke it. And it's his obedience that's credited to you and me. Remarkable. Remarkable. So Jesus kept the old covenant. He mediates the new covenant. His blood is the blood of the new covenant. No more blood offerings for sin need to be made. And through trusting in Jesus, not in Moses, not in the law, not in your moral improvement program, not in your self-righteous religious efforts, But through trusting in Jesus Christ and pledging our lives to him, we are joined to him in a vital union, and his victory becomes our victory. And Jesus is the promised rescuer who defeated Satan's sin and death. And it's through him we have victory. The text says at the end of the chapter, he says, as we go on beholding him, who, Moses? No. As we go on beholding him, the unveiled glory of God, We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, and this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He also speaks about the fact that now the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What freedom? (laughs) Freedom of no longer being under condemnation. Freedom no longer being under the law, but now in Christ, there's freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's a great, remarkable difference between the law of God written on stone and the Spirit of God who comes in and changes us from the inside out. Jesus is glorious. We're going to remember him at the table. And as we, as we read the scripture, again, we're going to hear Jesus say, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is superior and greater. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we stand in awe of you. What we have been reminded of from the scripture this morning is just grace to us. We can draw near to you, come to you through Jesus Christ, and find full acceptance. We're bold, we're courageous, we have hope, and it's not from our own merits, it's because of Jesus Christ. And the fact that you have taken our sin away and paid for them in Christ, and you have joined us to Christ by your grace through faith, he is Not only the mediator of the new covenant, but the fulfillment of it. He is our great high priest. Through him we draw near to you. He's our final offering. He's our final sacrifice. He's the full payment. Through him we are fully accepted. How could we not but glory in Jesus? We gather around this table to remember him, partaking of the bread, partaking of the cup, reminding ourselves of the body that was broken for us, reminding us of the blood that paid for our sin, and looking forward in faith to this rescuer, this conquering hero's great return. We look forward to it with great anticipation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.